back to Romans chapter 9. And uh, we're going to look at another set of verses today in Romans chapter 9. And as we're coming down through there, you remember I told you when we started the book of Romans, I felt like that our church is, is right there now, that uh, uh, you're ready for a book like Romans. book of Romans is, uh, if you even follow it in the order of the books of the New Testament, uh, it basically shows you uh, its importance. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which basically are books that transition you from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Then you have the book of Acts, and the book of Acts basically brings you from the nation of Israel uh, into the Gentile church, which you and I are part of. Then once that transition is complete, God put into your New Testament the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is the book that defines for you and for me everything that you and I believe. It's the book that lays itself out in a in, a, in, a, in an amazing way. And I told you when we started that most people, when they read the book of Romans, they think it's a very hard book and a very confusing book. It's really not. A lot of it has to do, as we've talked about before, the way Paul wrote it. He writes it like a, like a legal document because, you know, what we're reading in Romans is, is basically what I call the constitution of our Christianity. If you've ever in school had to memorize the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, you know how hard that is because of the style of writing that uh, it's presented in. And it's no different from the book of Romans, which is the doctrine on which everything that we believe. One of the things, if you remember, uh, that helped you is I showed you how the book itself is broke down into four sections. I showed you how that Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 really form the historical section. Tells you where we're coming from. Chapters 4 through chapter 8 deal with the doctrinal section. It teaches us what we are to believe based on the fact that Christ has now come and died and rose again and went back to heaven and established the church. The next section, and that's the section that we're in right now, is section uh, called the prophetic section. That's chapter 9, 10, 11. That section deals with God's viewpoint for the nation of Israel, clearly showing you and I in the church God's perspective that He's not finished with the nation of Israel yet, and those are very important passages. And I think probably uh, then the last section, which we call the practical section, run from chapter 12 through chapter 16. I think of all the things that we're going to do in the book of Romans, and uh, it'll take us quite a while to get here. But when we get to the last practical section, you're going to understand how this whole thing goes together. Because what he does is now he puts it all in perspective of because of what we are, what we have now as the church, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And he goes through every aspect of our personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be in, the, in verses 6 through 8 today. Another little section here. And this is a very important section. I think it really opens up one of the greatest keys in the Bible, and I think you're going to see it today as we come down through it. Now, here's what he says. Verse 6, Romans 9, 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are all not of, uh, all not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is... They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. 
We love you. We thank you for the Word of God that you've given us today. Thank you for those that have come out to hear it. We pray now, Father, that you'll take this time and, and that open up our hearts. We thank you for the men and women in this church that love you and love this church and, and love the Word of God and, and uh, are an active, vital part of this ministry and everything that we do that holds this together. They are the glue that holds this work of God together, and we thank you for that. Enrich us today. Give us a little bit more understanding about you and your Word, and we'll thank you and praise you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, and the sake we ask it, amen. Now, as we read this passage, here's Romans at its best. It says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. What in the world is he talking about? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but an Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That's confusing. That's Romans at its best right there. But when you put it in a proper context, and that's what we're going to do today, uh, you want to first of all remember that when you come to this chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's specifically focusing on God's dealing with the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, we're going to see <coughs> that he lays out and shows us how Israel got into the problem and the mess that they got in. In chapter 10, He's going to show us because of the fact that Israel didn't do what was right with God, God took the gospel and gave it to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 11, he's going to show us that in spite of that, God is not finished with the Jew, and he's going to at some point in time restore the nation of Israel back to its proper uh, place. And that is the key to this whole section here of the context, and we want to remember that. You remember that in uh, <clears throat> chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, I told you, I showed you the eight things that they forgot, that Israel forgot, that led them to the path of destruction. And we went through those. <coughs> verses 1 through 5 uh, has shown us the basic problem that they had. They forgot. They forgot all that God had done for them, and now they're in a mess. And the point he's making in verse 6, 7, and 8 is very important to understand our overall context. <coughs> now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of break this down. Let's look at verse 6 again. Here's what he said. Not as though the word of God hath not taken none effect. Let me explain that concept. What he's saying is this. He's saying that Israel's in a mess and God has temporarily put the nation of Israel on the back burner and then went to the Gentiles. But what he's saying is this, the Word of God had some effect on the nation of Israel. In other words, some Jews got saved. You're going to find in Jesus' time, guys like Nicodemus, guys like the Twelve Apostles. You're going to find that there were people, Joseph of Arthamea. You're going to find that there were men and women in the New Testament who actually believed on Christ. The Word of God did have an effect on them. Down through history, you'll find that that. Uh, that uh, Jews got saved. And when they got saved, they become part of the body of Christ. They, they, they were not in total blindness. You're going to find even today that you find people who are Jews, who trust Christ as their own personal Savior. So what he's saying in verse 6 is simply this. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. It did have an effect on some of the Jews. And then he says in verse, uh, he says the next verse, he says, he says, Verse 6, at the bottom of that, For they are not all Israel, we are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, they are all children, 
but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What's he saying there? He's saying that when you come down through this, he's saying neither because they are all the seed of Abraham are they children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. He said just because that once you got saved, you're no longer part of the nation of Israel. This is one of the greatest passages in the Bible that it is laid out in Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body of Christ. What he's simply saying here is this. The nation of Israel had the word of God. They rejected all of the things that God gave them. And God put them into captivity and turned his attention to the Gentiles. But the word of God which as a nation had no effect on the nation of Israel, some of the Jews, in spite of that, got saved. And what he's saying here is the fact that once they got saved, once they got saved, now they're no longer part of Israel, they're part of the body of Christ. That's what he's saying in verse 6. For they are not all Israel, were it of Israel. Why? Because some of them got saved, and now they're in the body of Christ, they're part of the church, they're not part of the nation of Israel anymore. That's how that system works. And that's very vital to see and understand. Then he says in verse 7, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What he's saying there is that a, a Jew that doesn't get saved is still a Jew, and his seed goes back through Isaac to Abraham, and he's a Jew in that sense. But once a Jew got saved, once he trusted Christ, once the Word of God had an effect on him and he got saved, then he's no longer a Jew. Just as when you got born, you were born a Gentile. But once you and I got saved, we're no longer a Gentile. You know why? Because the Bible says that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Once you got saved, you become a Christian. That sets up the whole premise for the Christian life. You see, I live in America. I have an American passport. But in actuality, I'm not an American. I'm an American by birth, but I'm a Christian by a spiritual new birth. And when I got that spiritual new birth, the Bible says, this world is not my home anymore. I'm, 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 I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world anymore. Bible says that my citizenship is now up in heaven. And when you understand that concept, you understand the beginning of the concept of of your life giving to Christ and your walk with the Lord and in time the ministry God has for you. I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I'm a Christian. The moment I get up and I say I'm a Democrat, then I've lost credibility to preach the gospel to the, to the uh, Republicans. And the moment I get up and say I'm a Republican, then I'll, the, the Democrats won't listen to my message. I'm neither one. I'm a Christian. My citizenship is up in heaven. I live in this world, but I'm not of this world. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Colossians that once I got saved, once you got saved, now I'm an ambassador to this world. I'm an ambassador back to this world. My job is not to get caught up in all the stuff that goes on. My business is doing God's business in this world. My business is telling everybody that there is a one who can save you and set you free. I'm here to tell you that there's one no matter where you're at in life, no matter what struggles that you have, there's one that will set you free. And he's neither a Democrat nor is a Republican. Though it always bothered me when he rode in Jerusalem, he did go in on a donkey, but that, that's beside the point. <clears throat> now look at verse 8, and here it comes. That is, they which are of the children of the flesh. There it is. 
children of the flesh. That is a Jew that has been born into the nation of Israel, and he's a child by birth into the nation of Israel. Children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. You know what he just told you there? Just what I told you. Just as when I got saved, I'm no longer an American. I'm no longer a Gentile. I'm now a Christian, though I may live in America. I now have the freedom to do whatever God wants me to do because I have been set free from this world. He's saying that the Word of God had an effect on some of the Jews. And it had an effect that they got saved. And when they got saved, they were no longer part of Israel. They were no longer children of the flesh as far as the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now they are children of God. And he makes a distinction between the children of God and the children of promise. The children of God would be born-again people who have now been saved and in the body of Christ. The children of the promise would be the Jews that never got saved that are still looking forward to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you understand how this things lay out, you see how easy this all really is. All we have to do is set a context. And when you have a context, everything falls into the place. You want to remember, when it comes to these three chapters, and this is I think you've got to have this in the back of your mind all the time. When it comes to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, you can't ever forget you're dealing you're dealing with the chapters that God is showing us His intention and His plan for the nation of Israel. It's three chapters that let us on the inside of what God is going to do with the nation of Israel while He's dealing with you and me in the church age and not fully having His attention on the nation of Israel. I told you this, and we want to turn over to here in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. This is a key passage in understanding all three of these chapters. And we looked at it once earlier on, but we've got to look at it again. We'll probably look at it several more times before we're done with these three chapters. But you've got to view everything in these three chapters from this verse, these three verses, four verses right here. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 25. This is Paul speaking now to you and me, the church. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, here's what he's saying here. And this is how it all goes together. He's saying, first of all, to you and me, brethren. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this. Because if you as a Gentile, if you as a Christian become ignorant of this aspect of God dealing with the nation of Israel, you're going to become arrogant because you're going to think that God is actually finished with the Jew and like many churches teach today, which is totally wrong, they teach that the church has taken the place of the nation of Israel. Some of you basic Bible kids who were here last in June on that Saturday morning, you already know more about God dealing with Israel just from the short time that we talked that morning. Because I showed you the, God's viewpoint of the nation of Israel and the church and showed you how they played into the overall plan. We're going to develop that theme as we go through. But what he's saying here is he says, don't get wise in your own conceits as a Gentile or as the body of Christ. Because God is not finished with Israel. Look what he says. He says that blindness in part is happened to Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's exactly what he just told you in Romans. He says the word of God did have an effect on some of them. The majority of the nation of Israel is blind. They can't see spiritually. But in spite of that, some Jews get saved. So he's telling you here that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. We know the fullness of the Gentiles is the rapture of the church. We know if you know anything about your Bible that in the Old Testament God does everything through the nation of Israel. They fall into apostasy. He sends them his son at the first coming of Christ. They crucify him. They stay in apostasy. So then God turns his attention to the the Gentiles. And he sends Paul in who starts the concept of the church. And then from that point on, we're in the church age. And men and women have to come to a saving knowledge of Christ to be part of that church. Once they get into that church, that church carries on till the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the fullness of the Gentiles. When that takes place, rapture takes place, we're out of here, then what does God do? God turns His attention back to the nation of Israel. That's why He has a tribulation period to bring that Jew back. That's what He's saying. He's saying that the nation of Israel as a nation turned their back and went into apostasy. And they had spiritual blindness. But he said, not all of them, because the Word of God did have an effect on some. Some Jews get saved. You, 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 if you stay in this business long enough and you witness to enough people, you, in some time you will win Jewish people to the Lord. But what he's saying is that once you become saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile, now you become a Christian and you're in the body of Christ. He makes that. That's why he's going back with the seed of Abraham and he's talking about the children of God and of the flesh and of the lineage and all of those things that he's talking about. Verse 26, he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. There it is. Now this is why Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 are the prophetic chapters. It's talking about in the future. All Israel is going to be saved. And that's going to take place at the second coming of Christ, if you know that. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, that's Jesus Christ, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, which when I uh, take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are the beloved for the Father's sake. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Here's what he wants you and I to understand. He's basically saying this. The nation of Israel is in blindness, spiritual blindness. They can't find Christ anywhere. Their religion is absolutely in a total wretched state of apostasy. But not all Jews were in that apostasy. Some of them actually got saved. And the ones that got saved then become the children of God. They're no longer the children of the promise because they're not of Israel anymore. Now they're part of the church. That's what he's saying. And then he's saying to you and me, but you need to understand something. I'm not finished with the nation of Israel. And blindness in part, spiritual blindness, has happened to the nation of Israel until the rapture of the church. And then I'm going to get the church out, you and me, up we go, and then I'm going to bring Israel back. And he says, you need to understand that right now, and here's what he's basically saying, right now the Jew is our enemy. You know, if you go over to Jerusalem or you talk to a really orthodox Jew, every time you say the name Jesus, he'll turn his head and spit. They, have, they, they totally reject the Messiah that God gave them. They're totally against everything about the New Testament in Jesus. And basically right now, they are your enemy. 
But what he's saying there is this. I'm writing all this to you so you understand what I'm doing with the Jew. And I'm telling you, you let them be your enemy, that's okay. But you never become their enemy. Now how do you do that? Because I understand what God is doing with them. I understand how that they were God's people in the Old Testament. God gave them everything. God gave them David. God gave them Solomon. They got the promise of the promised land through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I watched how God formulated the nation of Israel, brought that nation to fruition, brought them to the highest point in their life, and then watched the devil come in and destroy them. And then finally God put them into captivity. I watched God, through the Bible, send His own son down to them and say, here's your Messiah, and then they killed Him. And God said, well, I'm going to put you on the back burner of my big oven, but I'm not going to throw you out. And what he did then is he turned his attention to the Gentiles. He got an old Jew by the name of Paul, Saul, who got his name changed to Paul. And then he said, I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles and start my concept of the church. And that's what Paul did. And right now we're living, we're living in a time period right now where we're almost at the end of the church age. It's been going on now for almost 2,000 years. We're at the end of it. We're almost there for the rapture of the church to take us out of here. And when that happens, God is going to pull out His church and then He's going to say, I haven't forgotten about my people, the nation of Israel, and then He brings them back. What He's saying here is this. You and I need to understand that. You and I need to realize that, as He says it so eloquently here, He says this. He says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, what does that mean? The election of the fact that they are God's chosen people. He says, make sure they don't become your enemy. And that's one of the greatest lessons that we can learn. And that blindness in part is what he's talking about in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. The Word of God did have an effect on some of them. They did get saved. Therefore, uh, They're Jews by birth, but now they're Christians in one body. Just like I was a Gentile by birth. And now I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And now I'm a Christian. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. I don't get caught up in the things of this world. I don't let it pull me off my focus of what my job as a Christian is. I'm an ambassador. I have no political alignment. I have no alignment other than the gospel of Jesus Christ to every creature. That's what a Christian's job should be. And it comes when you understand these great concepts. Now this passage is one of the greatest keys in your Bible of putting in context the gospel. How many times have we read the gospels? Did you ever ask yourself this question? You realize that in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all they are or one story after another. You realize when you get into the book of Acts, there are no more stories. When you get into Paul's writings, there are no stories. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all there is is stories. There's a story of Nicodemus. There's a story of blind men. There's a story of demon-possessed people. There's a story, there's a story about uh, women, diseased, and little kids dead, and young men dying. There's a story. Of all, it's one story after another. When you get into Paul's writing, there are no stories. You ever ask yourself why? I'm going to show you this morning, based on this passage, <coughs> one of the greatest keys to unlock Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so you'll better understand what you're reading. Remember what our Bible basic class was all about? 
I told you that we all have two problems when it comes to the Bible. I have it too. Maybe mine's on a higher level, but I have the same problem. We all have the two basic problems when we read the Bible. I tell people, people tell me all the time, well, I read the Bible, you know, but boy, I, after a while, I just, my mind starts wandering and I start thinking about this and thinking about that. And they feel bad about that. And I'm not sure you should feel bad about that because I think that many times when we read the Bible, nobody's ever sat down and basically said, this is what you look for when you read the Bible. Reading the Bible without knowing what the, how many of you would be just riveted to reading the telephone book? I mean, you realize your, your Bible's not as thick as your telephone book. But how many of you would just say, oh, I can't get, wait to get home today? Why? Because I'm in the M's. Mm, powerful stuff. Why, you, we'd be bored in a second. Reading down all those names and all those addresses that mean absolutely nothing. That is the same way that most of God's people read the Bible. And I told you when we started, two problems we all have. When you read the Bible, you don't know what to look for. Why wouldn't you get bored? The second problem we have, when you do see something, you don't know what to do with it. Those two things alone will kill you. I mean, they'll, they'll just they'll, they'll wreck your whole Bible time. because you. And then what happens is you feel, you feel bad because you think, well, this is God's book. It's a holy book. And I'm a Christian. I'm God's child. Why can't I see things? There must be something wrong with me. Well, there's probably nothing wrong with you other than the fact that nobody ever sat down and taught you when you read your Bible, this is what you look for. You know what I'm going to do today? In the few minutes I got left, in the six hours I got left, oh, you know this is a six-hour Sunday. You know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to unlock Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for you based on what I just gave you today. And you won't be able to stay up with this. So you know what? If you're a visitor here today, you get a free tape because you know what? If you want to go through this because you'll never keep up with this because I got to move. And you know, it's, it's, but I'm telling you, I'm going to show you today. I'm going to unlock. I'm going to, what I'm about to show you today is worth $100 trillion in gold bullion. I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding. And I'll tell you something else. You couldn't find five preachers out there in this city today that know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to show you why here in a minute. Things like this that I give you, hey, it's what separates the men from the boys when it comes to the Bible. It's nothing to do with me. It's things like that I was taught by the old Philadelphian preachers that really still believe the Bible, that love the Bible, that that Bible was everything to them. It isn't like that I'm so smart that I sit down and figured all this thing out. Hey, I was as dumb as the newest young Christian ever was when I started. You know what somebody did? He took me aside and he showed me the same things I'm showing you. This is what Paul said when he said, The things I've given to you, said to Timothy, the things I've given to you, the same you commit to faithful men. I have no key on this, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you got to get where the, where, the, where the Word of God is taught. you got to get where you can get this stuff. Otherwise, you're going to go through your whole life and just reading your Bible and trying to figure it out. Well, you're here this morning. I can guarantee you one thing. If you pay attention this morning, you may not get the rest of the Bible. Maybe you won't come back. Maybe you won't come to the Bible class. Maybe I'll never see you again. Maybe some of you will get mad and leave. I hope so. I mean, I know. I mean, I don't mean that. The bottom line is this. You'll have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John down today. Never again will you read these things in these stories and say, I wonder what that's all about. I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to fix it for you. 
I'm going to fix it for you. Turn over to Mark chapter 8. Now, I want to turn to these, and I want you to read them because you've got to see them. I'm going to put this thing together, but, but and you need, to, you need to go back and put these in your Bible. I mean, I'd like to do every one of them. If I ever wrote another book, and I probably won't because I don't have time, but if I ever wrote <coughs> another book, <coughs> I wrote How to Study the Bible, which if you're a visitor here today and you want one, I will give you one of those just for being here today. Uh, it's already sold well under a million copies. You're going to have one. If I ever wrote another book, I would write a book on the great keys <coughs> that unlock the Bible. It would probably be 20 volumes. But I would go through and I would give you things just like what I'm going to give you today. I wish I had time to do every one of these in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't. I just have time to do what Kyle did the other night with the Great Pyramid. Just whet your appetite. Just whet your appetite. Now look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Now here's, the, here's where we start. We saw in Romans 8, 9... Then I took you to Romans 11 and shows you that uh, we saw blindness in part. We saw that. We saw where the Bible says the Word of God was of some effect. We understand that now. Now, let me show you. Let me show you what you got. This is, this is worth a billion dollars if you can grab it. I want to show you the most incredible key to your Bible as far as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, watch this story. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And he, Jesus, <clears throat> cometh to Bethesda. And they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. Now, aught is an old English word to mean, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. Now, you read that story in the Bible, and you say to yourself, wow, that's a nice little story, but why is it in there? What does it really mean? There's got to be more to this story when I'm reading these stories in here. There's got to be more. Do you know what you have? Now, I'm not going to ask, but I'm just going to ask. How many of you here today, when I read that, how many have already got it figured out where I'm going? Just raise your hand. Anybody? One, two, three, four, five, six, few of you? Good. All right. Well, let me bring the rest of you up to speed here. You know what you got? We just read blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Blindness in part. Here's a man who's blind. This man is blind. And when he meets Jesus the first time, Jesus spits in his eyes, and then he says, look up. And he says, what do you see? And he says, well, I see, I see I don't see very clearly. I see men walking around like trees. Then the Bible says that God touched him the second time. And he saw every man clearly. You know what you got there? That man is a picture of the nation of Israel. He's blind. The first time God touches him, he's only, he sees a little bit. He's only blind in part. The second time Jesus touches him, second coming of Christ, he sees every man clearly. See what you got? Now, what I'm about to tell you is this, and then I'm going to show you some examples. Every story in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every story about every man, every woman, every child, every circumstance, every story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will illustrate for you some way, some shape, some form, the nation of Israel and their spiritual condition. 
You write that in your Bible. I'm going to show you here in a minute. You write that in your Bible. You get that in the back of your mind that when you start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you come upon a story, you already know that that story is a story that's in there that illustrates Israel's condition when Christ comes to them. And you're going to automatically know now what you're reading, why you're reading it, and putting it into the context of that book. When Christ comes to the nation of Israel the first time, they are blindness in part. So the first time he touches that guy, he can't see real clearly. He sees people like trees. Then the second time he touches him, he sees every man clear. And what is the word in that passage? What is the key word there? What is the key word in that passage? Restored. When you find the word made whole, when you find the word restored, when you find the phrase a certain man, a certain woman, a certain this, a certain that, it's always going to bring you to that point where what you have is a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. Verse 23, he has partial sight, picture of the first coming of Christ when he's touched by Jesus. At the second time Jesus has touched him, second coming, he sees clearly and he's restored. Now these two passages set the context for every example of God dealing or the healing of a man or a woman or whatever situation is you find in the gospel. And all of them represent Israel's spiritual condition. And the healing represents them being restored when God makes them whole again. You never want to forget that. Every time you find one, you want to read that. And then, that doesn't stop there. We don't have time to get into this today. But that's a great key. But then they open up other doors, which are greater keys. You know what he says? One little phrase. I saw men walking around like trees. One of the things you're going to learn about the Bible, if you stick around long enough or you stay in the Bible, is that everything he says means something. The writer of the Bible just didn't say, well, I see men, because trees are upright and trees have, you know, that, they're, that he just said that. No, no, no. Everything in the Bible, the Bible wasn't written by man. The Bible was written by God. God put it in there. I see men walking around like trees. You know why? Another great key. In the Bible, men are likened to trees. Why, don't, when you want to find out your ancestry, don't you search out your family Somebody said, she's so ugly, she fell out of the ugly tree, and I think she hit every limb on the way down. <laughs> Trees have limbs. You have limbs. <laughs> you know that your body's made up of cells? You know the tree's made up of cells? You know the body, cells in your body completely transform themselves in every seven years, and in a, in a tree, those cells transform themselves every seven years. Now, that's not the best part. He told you that, but then when you go through the Bible in Psalms 1, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And he should be like a what? Tree. See? Not like trees. You want to understand the Antichrist? You study trees, because he's likened to a great bay tree in the Old Testament. Christ is called the tree of righteousness. It opens up tremendous keys. Obviously, we don't have time to get into that today, but I'm showing you what this is. All right, let me show you another one. Turn over to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Now, here it is again. Mark chapter 5, verse 35. Now, here's another story. 
Now let's watch this story. I wish we had time to do them all. We don't. But once I show you what to look for, your whole perspective of the New Testament will change. Verse 35, Mark 5, 35. While he had spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult. Tumult's an old English word. It means like a lot of chaos. He seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come to the, saith to them, why, why is the damsel, uh, uh, and he came to them, he saith to them, why make ye this ado? And weep, the damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel, and they were with him, and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Tai thy thigh kum, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded them something should be given her to eat. Now there's another one. Now notice the key words in here, verse 35 and verse 38. House. As in house of Israel. Notice it's a ruler of the synagogue, a ruler of Israel. And this little daughter, go back to the Old Testament sometime and study the daughters of Israel. This little daughter has died. Picture of Israel's spiritual death. And Christ shows up. And when Christ shows up, He raises her from the dead. Notice, what's the point to it? Notice, why did we have to know that she's 12 years old? I'll tell you why. Because there's 12 tribes in the nation of Israel in apostasy. That's why. See how that thing works? See how that thing works? Every place you go, every story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you're reading it, look for those things. She's 12 years old. What's the point? Why do I need to know that? Because she's a picture of the deadness spiritually of the nation of Israel. And when Christ shows up, He raises her from the dead. And she comes back to life. You know what that's a picture of? You find that back in Ezekiel chapter 36, 37, and 38. A picture of Israel's spiritual deadness and then coming alive at the second coming of Christ. That's, what, that's what's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. The valley of dry bone where God puts them back together. And yet they're not alive. And then he, he breathes the breath of life in them. And they become alive. That's what she pictures. That's what she pictures. I'm going to show you a key here. Maybe this won't mean nothing to you. But brother, you want something that really explains a lot of things in churches, with pastors, with people, Christians, why they don't get the Bible? I'm going to show you why. One of the greatest, most powerful passages anywhere in the Bible of why men, God's people, don't get the Bible. Let me read it back through you again. Verse 37, and he suffered no man to follow him except Peter, James, and John. Now, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is, if there's 12 apostles, how come only Peter, James, and John get to see this great miracle? 
You realize that when you study the 12 apostles, you'll find that most of the time great things are done. Only three of them are there, Peter, James, and John. There's a reason for that. Peter, James, and John represent something for us that, that most people don't understand. But I want you to see this. Let's read on down here. Verse 38. And when he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult, and them that wept, he, he wailed and, and, and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make ye such an ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Verse 40. And they laughed him to scorn. Now, you want to understand death in the Bible? And I don't have time to get into it this morning. You want to understand what happens when you die as a Christian? Do you want to realize and grasp the reality of what happens when you die? How you make it from here to there? Do you want to understand the concept of leaving time in the portals of time and stepping into eternity where there is no time? Do you want to grasp the concept of how it all works? You got the key right here. You see, when we look at death, we look at it as a permanent thing. When God looks at death for a Christian, He looks at it as sleep. And he's not using some nice little metaphor to give you some kind of a, a, an allegorical idea about it. He says, she's not dead, she sleepeth. He just gave you one of the greatest keys in the Bible that we can take from there, and I could walk you systematically through the Bible and show you exactly what happens the moment you die, step out of this body, and how you get where you're going. But what did they do? They laughed him to scorn. That's what many, many preachers do today. That's what many, many Christians do today when they read their Bible and they see something in there they don't understand. You know, we're so arrogant that we think that when we read the Bible, if we can't understand it, there must be something wrong with it. There ain't nothing wrong with the Bible. What's wrong is us. How many times I've heard some scholar get up there and correct the Bible? Like God made a mistake when he wrote it. Like, this word shouldn't be in there. I heard a guy get up one time and talk for 40 minutes why the last 16 verses of Mark should not be in your Bible. I heard a guy get up and take 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. The greatest verses in the Bible that talk about and lay out and establish the concept of a trinity. And you know what his whole thesis was? Shouldn't be in your Bible. What, God make a mistake and you caught it? What arrogance we have as human beings that we think that we can correct. Now, I don't know where you're at with the Bible, but I believe that when God wrote a Bible, it's unlike any other book the world has ever seen. I believe it's all the Bible from beginning to end. I don't believe there's one mistake in it. I don't believe that there's one error in it. I don't believe that some scribal heir who was writing something in the middle of the night got blurry-eyed and put a zero when it should have been a one. I believe that was holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. We talk a lot about inspiration. Inspiration. Well, the Word of God is inspired. The Word of God is inspired. So what? What good is it if God inspired it one time if He wasn't God enough to preserve it? I believe he inspired it, and I believe he preserved it. And I believe I got every word that he wants me to have. I believe that. And I believe just like they, I believe when he spoke, and he said, what's the big deal? She's not dead, she's sleeping. He was giving them one of the greatest keys. And just like 
they laughed him to scorn. When you get up and teach some of the great keys out of this book that are absolutely just unlocks great truth, you get laughed at. Now you want to know why you want to, you know why those guys never get anything out of the Bible? You know why they gotta run around in little circles and get it from somebody else or get it on the internet? You know there's pastors in the city that all they do, hey, I've been in this business for almost 40 years, man. You know, there's pastors that get their sermons, just get them off the internet. You realize there's a place you can go on the internet where you can find some really great sermons and you can just tickle your people's ears and your people will think you really know the Bible until you hold a Thursday night Bible study and let them ask you questions about the Bible. Now, I'm not telling you what those websites are because I get my sermons out of there. Now, here's the deal, and this is the great thing. Not only is she a type of the nation of Israel that she's going through, he just gave me one of the greatest keys that unlocks death for a Christian. This is why Paul says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Because for you and me, there is no death. It's sleep. But he walked in and gave one of them the greatest doctrinal statements on death and dying for a child of God, and they laughed at him. You know what he did? Read the rest of that verse. He put him out of the house. He put him out. He said, if you don't believe what I said, you're not going to see what I'm going to do. You know why these guys can't get anything when they laugh at that book, make fun of that book, try to get that book? You know why they can't get the stuff that some of you basic young Christians have? You know why? God put them out of the house. Shut the door of Revelation. He ain't giving them anything. The Bible is the only book in the history of the world that because it was not written by man and it was written by God, the basis of you getting anything out of it is solely one thing. It isn't your, people think you've got to be educated. No, no. Truth of the matter is, the dumber you are, the better God wants you. God, what happens when you get intelligent, you get educated beyond your intelligence. And you start to question God. I, I believe in higher education. Man, I made it through the eighth grade. I'm with you. <laughs> and the only reason I didn't go any farther because I was 21 when I got out of the eighth grade. I was in the fifth grade so long the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. But I'm telling you. You want to be a doctor? Please go to medical school. You want to be a nurse? Please go to medical school. Where's my new nurse at here? Where's she at? I know she's here someplace. Where's where, where she at? Where, where, where? Congratulations. She passed her bar exam today. Or not her bar exam. She's now a full-fledged nurse. Congratulations. Yeah, I give her a round of applause. Well, she just come on forward. Let's take up an offering for her. Gonna... I'm telling you. You're going to be a doctor? Get all the education you can. You're going to be a lawyer, get all the education you can. You're going to be, a, you're going to be a, an engineer, build building, get all the calculus you can get your hands on. You're going to be a, something out there in the corporate world, you're going to be a whatever, get all you can. You're going to be a Christian and learn the Bible. I don't know how to tell you this. This kind of rubs you the wrong way. I know it does. Stay as dumb as you are. Don't let anybody ever talk you out of the book God wrote you. One time, one time, the disciples, who had been with Jesus now for a number of times, remember them? The big professional guys who were always with the Lord Jesus, walking around wherever he went. And the people would come up and they'd say, oh, you, you with him? Um, yes, I'm with him. Which one are you? 
well, I'm really the number one guy, but you don't want to tell these the other guys around here, you know, I'm closest to him. You know, I really like to see him. Okay, well, you know, you, you come to the right guy. Man. I got your back, man. You come to me, I'll talk to you. I can, I can get you. I know him. And we're just, we're just like that, man. We can get you there. They got professional. They got big time. One time a bunch of little kids came to him. Remember that story? A bunch of little kids. Kids are dirty. Kids play in the dirt. I was watching some of you kids go up to the other kids last night and throw dirt in their face. <laughs> and they're already wet and it turned into mud. Kids play in the dirt. They eat dirt. I mean, kids can be getting great. You get them out there for an hour or so, they get dirty, filthy. And you know what? That's the way they were. Kids have always been kids. And so here they are. Here's the apostles, you know, clean white robes, you know. And these little, little kids coming up and, hey, get away, get away. Well, we want to see Jesus. We want to, you know, and it, they didn't want them little kids to get Jesus because now the ministry had got so important. Now the, the 12 apostles, and I don't know how many times he takes them aside. You know when he put them in the ship and left them out there in the middle of the sea and they're all out there? You know why he did that? The Bible tells you he did that because their hearts were hardened. Hey, let me tell you something. If 12 men could walk with Jesus every day, eat what he eats, sit with him every day, and hang out with him and just be with him, and their hearts could get hardened to the ministry, my God, people, what can happen to us? We don't stay in that book. Little kids come up. They said, we want to be part of him. We want to be with him. And they said, oh, no, you can't see him. <coughs> this is an adult ministry. <laughs> you know, <coughs> you know we, we, he's really busy. You know, he doesn't have time for little kids. Man, we're out there. Saving, I mean, we're raising, we're up, we're, we're, we're unstopping deaf ears, raising dead people, giving eyesight back to the blind. We got a full thing. A big bus is just coming in with big Jesus banners on the side. We're going to be out of here in 20 minutes. We don't have time. You know what Jesus said? He said, stop it. And this is another great key. This is just as good as she sleepeth. You know what he said? He said, except that you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. He didn't say, except you come to me as a Ph.D., post hole digger. <laughs> Somebody said, I got a B.A., bunch of applesauce. I got, I got an M.A., more applesauce. I got a Ph.D., piled higher and deeper applesauce sauce. <laughs> That's all it is. He didn't say, in case you got a degree, you come to me. He said, in case you, you've spent many, many years in seminary and you can come to me. He said, except as you come as a little child. I don't care if you're 50, 60, 70, 80. Don't ever lose the status with God of just coming a little child. A little child will believe whatever you tell him. I was driving back from Ohio. This is why I slobber when I preach. I'm just a six-year-old kid. <laughs> We'd drive back from Ohio, and I couldn't, remember, I couldn't forget how years and years ago when my little girls were just babies, and they were sitting in the back, and we were driving real early in the morning, and we were coming through Ohio. And Ohio is notorious for State Highway Patrol getting you. We drove from Missouri, all through Missouri, all through Illinois, all through Indiana, probably saw two cop cars. We got to the Ohio line between Ohio and, and, and Canton, which is about, uh, you know, 200 and some miles. We must have saw 50 State Highway Patrol. They were everywhere. The mosquitoes were not as bad as the Highway Patrol was. <laughs> I couldn't think that morning we were driving home, and Barb was asleep on the side, and I was driving. And it was, you know, early in the morning, and I'm kind of tired, and, 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 and Kelly woke up, and, and, Jay, and, and Maddie was there, and, and, and it was this guy drove by us. What did I say? It was funny. 
Well, anyway, we were driving along, and they're in the back seat in the little car chairs, you know, and this guy goes by us in a big Lincoln Continental. And obviously it's 6 o'clock in the morning, and he, you know, he's got his seat back, he's laying back in the seat, and he's got his, probably got two fingers on the steering wheel, and he's just kind of enjoying, probably listening to back then, boy, I don't know, Led Zeppelin, you know, funky whoever, you know, and he's, he's just driving, and you know, we're driving along, and he comes up right alongside of us for a little while, you know, and then he just moves on ahead, and the kids looked over, and they said, they said, Daddy, Daddy, that man's asleep. That man's asleep. He's going to run off the road and hit us. And I said, no. And so I'm thinking, you know, it's early in the morning. So I said, no, he's not asleep. He's got one of them new cars that you can sleep while you drive. <laughs> Do we, Daddy? Do we, Daddy? Do we, Daddy? Yeah. Does he, Daddy? Yeah. I said, oh, yeah. He says, why don't we get one of those cars? I said, well, maybe we would online. She said, tell me about it. Tell me. Oh, they're all excited. You know, Barb's still... She's, you know, and we're driving down there, and, and he had these big curb feelers out. You know how you, put, you used to have you know, curb feelers out, don't you? And, and I said, you see those things coming off the deal? I said, those are sensors. You see that white line paint on the, oh, I was going to it. I said, you see that white paint on the side of the road? There's sensors in there, and when he gets too far to the left or right, it automatically brings you back over. And I said, now, you see those little things in the back there by the trunk? I said, those are the heat sensors that pick up when, uh, when you get too close to a car in back, and it backs you off, pulls you over, and it's got some on the front. And, and now you can, you can get going, turn all that stuff on, and just go to sleep right there and just drive. And when you wake up, you're, you're where you want to be. Oh, they were so excited. They wanted one of those cars. I did too, but at, time, <laughs> but, but, but at that time, they're yelling and screaming, and my wife wakes up. And now I'm in trouble, see? <coughs> Because she thinks I'm lying to the kids. I said, well, you're the one who let them think there's Santa Claus out there. Don't tell on me, you know. <coughs> and I said, who was out there, you know, when, the, when a couple of Aprils ago we saw the rabbit humming around the backyard. You said, oh, girls, there's the Easter bunny. And I said, yeah, the neighbor shot him. <laughs> so, so, so uh, you know, she wakes up and they're all excited and barred mad at me. But my point is this. Those kids would believe whatever I tell them. They weren't. Educated enough yet to know the sophistication of automobiles and figure it all out. They just had a father who they trusted and believed. And whatever I told them was okay with them. And they didn't look at that point in their life for a higher authority to override what dad had said to them. That's the way you had to be with God. You don't ever look for a higher authority to override what he says. He says she sleepeth. They laughed him to scorn. You know what he did? Put him out of the house. Nothing will get you out of the house of revelation and the house of learning faster than scoffing and scorning at what God wrote in His Word. I believe it all. I believe it all. And I think it's places like this that men laugh at that are the keys. They're the keys. Remember Psalms chapter 1 says, Blessed are the man that walketh not in the counting of God, nor, standeth with his head, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. I'll show you another one here. <coughs> Matthew chapter 9. <coughs> I got kind of a frog in my throat this morning. I got high with those cigars. Just kill me. You know? <clears throat> I'm just kidding you. Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. Now, here's a great one. Here's another one. And boys, this got a key to it. I wish I had time to get on all these today, but we don't. But we do it. And this will be great stuff for Thursday night. You want to find out more, you can come and ask. All right, verse 20. Matthew 9, 20. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood. <sighs> Twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I will be made whole. But Jesus turned him about and said unto her and said, Daughter, daughters of Israel, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made thee whole. 
and the woman was made whole from that hour. Now I want you to notice here that this woman has an issue of blood. Her disease was in her blood. Leviticus chapter 11 says the life of the flesh is in, her, in your blood. Three times you find where she's made whole. Once in verse 21 and two times in verse 22. Israel has a blood issue. Issues, Israel's in the flesh from the fall of Adam. Their blood got poisoned and the life of their flesh is in the blood. They need a cleansing of that blood. Their disease is in their flesh and the life of the flesh is in their blood. So here's a woman that has a disease in her blood 12 years. 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Ah, I'd be less than a preacher if I didn't give you this. We don't have time to get into it, but it's an incredible key. Look at verse 22. And she was made whole from that very, and made whole from that hour. You know, in Matthew chapter 20, I don't know if you know it or not, you have five places in your Bible that show you when Paul said of the times and the seasons, I have no need to write unto you, he was talking about that you and I as a child of God, <coughs> I don't know the, attack, the exact proximity <coughs> of when Christ is coming back. <coughs> you know, <coughs> Christ uh, coming back in the nation of Israel, uh, being restored is also likened to a, a woman in travail, going to have a baby. And, and most of you women uh, have had children here, you older ladies that are married, you've had children, and uh, you know that when you have a child, Oh, you, you, you conceive a child, you go to the doctor, he gives you a due date. And, uh, you know, the, the exception proves the rule. Most women never hit their due date. And then when the doctor said, well, you're going to have the baby on March 12th, you know what? You probably don't have it on March 12th. You may go a week before, a week after, you may, who knows? But normally, you never have the baby on the date that the doctor says it's due. But, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you know physiologically, when you better not stray too far from home. You know that it's getting close. You know that you may not make your due date, but you know that, man, it's coming. And I'm not going to go out jogging. I'm not going to run a 5K. I'm, not, I'm going to stay home, keep my feet up, and I'm just, I get, there comes some contractions, but it ain't real yet. You know when it's getting close. I don't think probably hardly one out of a thousand women hit their due date. But every woman knows when it's getting close. You know what? You'll never know the day and the hour he's coming. But I can tell you right now, he's getting close. That baby is almost ready to be delivered. That man child, the Lord Jesus Christ. And she says she was made whole from that very hour. There's five ways you know the approximate time. Five systems in your Bible. One of them is an hour system. You don't have to turn to it, but in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, you got a story, another story. That story is about workers going into a field to work for the Lord Jesus. And some will go in at 6 in the morning, and the work day is a 12-hour day. 12 hours. Imagine that. They go in at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they work at 6 at night. 12 hours. The Bible says he sends some workers in early in the morning. That would be early in Acts. He says he sends some the workers into the field to, to do the harvest about the third hour. Send some more in the sixth hour. Send some more in the ninth hour. Send the last workers in on the eleventh hour. And then he comes back at the twelfth hour. You know in Washington, D.C. right now, there's a natural research group that's researching the end of the world, and they have what they call a doomsday clock. 
And the doomsday clock is a time that's built on a 24-hour system. And the world is going to end at 12 o'clock, midnight. And their whole clock system is built on the world events that's going on in the world. They're not even a Christian group. They're not even a Christian group. On the doomsday clock, they got it 10 to 12. 10 minutes left. And they're unsaved. I, it's no accident that he sends some in early in the morning. And then he sends some the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. And then he sends the last workers in the eleventh hour. You ask the average pastor, the average child of God, to explain that back there for you and take those 12 hours and break it down into the how many hours, how many years make an hour so you can figure the things out. He couldn't do it if his life depended on it. You know why every child of God ought to do it, ought to be able to do it? You know why you should be able to do it in time? Maybe you can't now because you're not there yet, but in time you should be. I'll tell you why. Because he told us in Romans that we are to understand God dealing with the nation of Israel. And that hour is one of the systems that God shows you and me about His coming. You know when the 11th hour started? Oh, let me tell you something. Count down to Armageddon, huh? I've told you before. And the great prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 about Israel becoming a nation and how God is going to restore them. I told you before and showed you how the whole system works its way out. And you, you, can, you can learn from that exactly where we're at. And you begin to realize and understand that, that God is, is doing the last things that He's trying to get done before He comes back. We're at the end. The church is in a mess. The world's in a mess. The country's in a mess. Everything's in a mess. Israel's in a mess. What we need is somebody to come down and straighten it all out. The only problem is the wrong guy's coming first, but then the good guy's coming later. For 20, almost 2,000 years, 1,900 years anyhow, Israel without a nation. Israel was without a nation. They had no land. They had nothing that they called home. They were vagabonds on this earth. And as long as everybody looked at and studied nations and ethnic groups, they said they're out of the land, they'll never be back. And lo and behold, in 1948, 1948, the fig tree budded and God brought the nation of Israel back together and fulfilled the prophecy in Matthew chapter 24. But that's not where the 11th hour started. At the end of World War II, England had won World War I. And a year before that, General Allenby had kicked the Muslims out of Jerusalem. And now the greatest nation on the planet at that particular point that had the Word of God and was responsible for the greatest missionary movement the world had ever seen now held the city of Jerusalem. During World War I, there was a, there was a Jewish man by the name of Wiesman. And believe it or not, Wiesman took old potatoes and some other scraplings and some other little components and he, he designed a smokeless gunpowder that really enhanced the British army to the place and was attributed to a lot to the victory they had over the Axis forces in World War I. It was at that time that England was still a Bible-believing nation for the most part and many of those old Anglian guys believed the Bible and loved God and were saved. And, and a guy by the name of Lord Belfar 
stood up in British Parliament and he declared that the land belonged to the nation of Israel. In fact, he opened up a King James Bible and read several passages that talked about the land belonged to them. And he put forth a, 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 a declaration called the Belfar Declaration that would give the land back to the Jew. Ladies and gentlemen, that started your 11th hour. On God's prophetic clock, if it's all over at 12 o'clock, we are at 11.54 right now. The last workers, the 11th hour, started in 1918. God made it so clear, if anybody's paying attention, because the Belfar Declaration, put out by Lord Belfar in 1918, was signed on the 11th hour, on the 11th day of November, the 11th month, just 11 months to the day that Lord Allenby entered Jerusalem on November 11, 1917. The Belfar Declaration kicked off the last hour before he comes back. You say, now, how do you get that? How do you know that? A while back I told you something. I didn't give them to you because I was going to wait and see if anybody would ask on Thursday night who really cared. But I told you there are seven stewardships that you are to be a steward of in the New Testament, that you and I as Christians, there are seven things we're to be a, have stewardship over. Seven things we're to be a steward. One of them is the nation of Israel. You better watch Israel. We're in the 11th hour. We get that from a story about a little woman here who just touched him and was made whole, and she was made whole from that hour. Giving you one of the greatest keys. Every demon-possessed man in the Bible, every demon-possessed woman, Mary Magdalene, who has cast out seven devils. She's cast out in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. You're going to go back and you're going to find in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, six things that God hates. You'll find those six things matched up in Matthew chapter 12 to the seven unclean spirits. And the Bible says in Proverbs, the six things that God hates, yea, the seventh make an abomination, making the seven. Those seven things that the devil hates make up the seven personalities of the Antichrist, which were the seven unclean spirits in the man in Matthew 12, and the seven unclean spirits kicked out of Mary Magdalene, who's a type of the nation of Israel. She got restored when she met Christ. Every story you go to, Every story you go to. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, we got the story of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. You know there's seven women in your Bible. There's seven women in your Bible that are barren women. In other words, they can't have children. Elizabeth is the last one. Down through the Old Testament, there's six more. Those seven women picture the nation of Israel who is barren. Every one of those women at one point in their life, after being barren, give birth to a child, a man-child, who's one of the 21 types of Christ in the Bible. And that child is a great leader in the nation of Israel. Every one of those women represent the nation of Israel. Elizabeth is the last one. She's barren, and then she has a child, and that child represents Christ. Picture the nation of Israel. Now, I'm going to give you my last one here, and then I'm going to be done, but this is my, this is my favorite this is my favorite. John chapter 5. John chapter, I wish I had time to do them all. I got more on here I ain't going to get to because I just, you got to, you know what, you got to pick and choose, man. John chapter 5. Oh, this is my favorite. 
This is my favorite one. This is my favorite one for two reasons. I'm going to give you the first reason. This is a great message to preach. If you're a young guy here and you want to get a firecracker of a message that you can just wail into and wade into them and smite and hip and thigh and preach the paint off the walls, this is where you go. This is easy. And this is one of my first messages that I ever preached. <clears throat> but we're going to look at it from Israel's standpoint first. John chapter 5. That's the first reason I like it. I'll give you the second one in a minute. <clears throat> John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. <clears throat> After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Ah, here it comes, and a certain man. See that thing? Was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, he knew that he had been now a long time in that case. Yes, Israel has been a long time in that situation. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? <coughs> the impotent man <coughs> answered and his Sir, <coughs> I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, I, 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 the second reason I love this so much, because this is one of the greatest places in the Bible, not only to preach. This is one of the greatest stories in the Bible that illustrates Israel's condition. But that's not the second reason why I like it. I like it because almost every pastor that you ask will tell you this story should not be in your Bible. You see, they don't know, how, they don't know what to do with it. Because the story is so out of character for the rest of the things that Jesus has taken place. And when you're not a little child anymore and you're educated beyond your intelligence, <clears throat> you know, when you don't understand something, obviously it couldn't be you, so it has to be the Bible. So we get out of it. We just get it out of here. And the reason for it is, is the fact that uh, the later, newer manuscript, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, is not found in. And it's true, it's not found in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. But your King James Bible isn't after Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Your King James Bible is after the Greek Texas Receptus. And it is in that one. See? So that's why I like it. I like it because I found over the years that where the scholarly world tells me that it shouldn't be there, and they make fun of it and laugh at it and scoff at it, and say it shouldn't be there is usually one of the greatest keys of something in the Bible you're ever going to find. They can't see it. You know why? God put them out of the house. They're out of the house. Out of their mind, too, but that's another message. <clears throat> now, look at this. I think, personally, this is one of the greatest, easiest messages to preach. Powerful. Now, look at this. Notice the four things, that, the four issues this man has. And this is a picture of where the nation of Israel is spiritually. The first thing it is, they're impotent. That means they're powerless. If a nation was ever powerless, it's the nation of Israel. Then the second thing that says about them is that they're blind. That's spiritual blindness. The third thing is the fact that they're halt. That means as a nation, they have no walk with God. Halt means that you can't walk. 
They have no power with God. They have, they're spiritually blind with God. They have no walk with God. And the fourth thing he says is that he's withered. And that would tell us that they have no work for God. That's Israel's condition. Now the story goes, and this is what they have a problem with. The story goes that every year, while they laid around this porch, this pool in Bethesda, that every year an angel came down and troubled the waters. And when he troubled the waters, the first one that got in got healed, and it was everybody else didn't make it. And they have a problem with that because they can't understand an angel coming up. I've even heard some pastors try to say that it was a demonic angel that came down. No, it was a demonic angel that told you that. <laughs> why, can't, why can't we put it together? Why can't we understand that water in the Bible is a picture of the Word of God? Why can't we grasp the great concept that water in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God? Why can't we see that this man and all these folks that are laying around this pool that is the picture of the Word of God in the water can't, are powerless, are blind, they're halt, they're maimed, they have all kinds of infirmities, and the water they have, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is right in their midst. But because they're powerless, because they're withered, because they're lame, they can't get in. When that angel comes down, no problem for me. Acts chapter 7, verse, what is it, 54, says that the Old Testament law was given uh, by, the, uh, by the disposition of angels. God used angels all through the Old Testament. Somebody said, wow, well, you know, I mean, I don't, hey, the Bible says, how long, verse 35, verse 5, and a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 says, When a nation of Israel come out of the land, I know what we teach. We teach it in the generality. They wandered for 40 years, don't we? But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14, you'll find the first two years, they're moving away around, and God doesn't count their wandering till after that. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 says that they wandered for 38 years, the man's age. Nothing like a Bible to clear up a seminary education. Notice he's made whole on the Sabbath day. That's a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. That's when Christ comes back. You see, this story illustrates the whole problem. You boys and gals in Institute, we're in the book of Hebrews right now. And I told you in the book of Hebrews that the book of Hebrews is a great book because it contrasts the Old Testament from the New Testament. It basically shows you that the Old Testament was, was, in, was, was insufficient. The Old Testament couldn't fix man's problems. The very best they could do could bring an offering of a bull or a goat. But the Bible told us in Hebrews that that could never wash away anybody's sin. And what he does in the book of Hebrews is chapter by chapter, he goes through and he shows you the Old Testament priest. And then he compares the New Testament priest of Christ and shows you that one's better. He shows you the Old Testament sacrifice. Then he shows you that the New Testament sacrifice, Christ, was better. He basically, through Hebrews, shows you what the Old Testament did and how 
inefficient it was. It couldn't fix man's sin problem. It could only temporarily cover it. But the lambs and the bulls and the goats could only temporarily take away sin. But when the Lamb of God came, He eradicated sin. And the book of Hebrews shows you the Old Testament was good, but Christ is better. The Old Testament was fine, but the New Testament is better. You know what you got here? Got a picture of that. This story about a man being here with a bunch of other folks being lame and can't in there. And when the angel come down and troubled the water and only one man could get in. And when the first one in was in and everybody else had to go on with their infirmities. You know what that story really shows you? If you come to it as a child. If you get your education out of the way. If you just believe the story and believe that it ought to be in there. Once you get the key that I just gave you today about how that all these stories are a picture of Israel's spiritual condition. You're in, man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will never be the same to you again if you keep that thought when you read it. Because that story illustrates the Old Testament situation. It was inadequate. Only one man could get in. It was only a temporary thing. Everybody else could get in. That was the Old Testament system. The Old Testament system was not a system that was accounted for everybody. And it shows you that the Old Testament system there was, wouldn't get the job done. But when Jesus showed up, He healed the man instantaneously. And it shows you that what was coming was better than what they had in the Old Testament. That's the story. That's the picture. Under this system, only one could get in. The rest was out of luck. But someone was coming who was better than that system, who will get everybody in, and that there'll be no diseased people once you trust Christ as your personal Savior. Now, boys, you want to preach a good message? The great parallel. All of these have great parallel. Historically, they're all true stories. Inspirationally, you can find great truths for you and for me, but from a doctrinal standpoint, you don't ever want to forget First and foremost, these stories are showing you Israel's spiritual condition. God's people today, much like the nation of Israel in that story, are laying around. They have the Bible right in front of them. Many of them have the Holy Spirit of God. You talk about an analogy. You talk about a parallel. You talk about God's people representing this in your life and my life. This is why there's such a great, easy message to preach. They were laying around the pool of water, you, which represents the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God. You have the Bible in your hand. You have, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you. Why do you struggle with those infirmities when you have what can heal you? And God's people today, notice it says, it says the sheep gate. That's the place of sacrifice. <clears throat> That's where they bring the sheep in for the sacrifice. No, it says Bethesda. That means mercy. These people are in the place of sacrifice. They're in the place where mercy is. But they can't get in under the Old Testament system. You and I are in. You have the sacrifice of Christ applied to your life. You, you've got the mercy of God. You have the water, the Holy Spirit of God in your hand this morning and the Holy Spirit of God inside you. And yet, we lay around the Bible, we lay around the pool, powerless, spiritually blind, halt. We have no walk with God, withered. We have no work for God. That's the parallels here are incredible to what Israel was to what the body of Christ is today. 
I have never in my life, I would have never thought in the short 40 years of my, of my ministry and looking around that I would see such a demise of the power of God in people's lives. I'll tell you, it means all the more to me when I see, I'll tell you, it means all the more to me when I see God using you and doing in your lives in this ministry that the power is there. But I also know that I'll tell you what, we live in a day and age where God's people are, are, have no, they're withered, they're hope, they're maimed, they're powerless with God. All because they're laying around in the midst of all their infirmities. When they have what can help and heal them. I've never seen it all my life. I've never seen a time where God's people take such a, a dim view of living a holy life for God. Think that you can have one foot in the world and one foot in, in doing what God wants you to do. I had somebody, before I went on, I see my mom. A friend of mine wrote me a letter or sent me an email. And he, he said, I'm sending you something in the mail. He said, I want you to see this. And he's a friend of mine for years. And we have talked many, many times about, about what's going on in Christianity and how dead it is and how God people. And he, 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 he got on the computer. I don't know anything about him. You know, all I can find on my computer is, is the way to find my eBay. I can't get anything on that. But I guess they have what they call, you help me with this now, my face, my space. <laughs> You're laughing at my face? <laughs> what's, the, what's the face thing? Face crook? Face book, I got you. And, and he sent me a whole copy of people that we knew as Christians. And I don't know how it works, but I guess you gotta, you got to be accepted in or something like that. And I don't know. And I couldn't believe it. These were people that he knew that I knew. And they were God's people, saved people. And when I got on there, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the things that they were saying. I couldn't believe how they were talking about Bible here. And then you go over here and they got pictures of half-nude women over here like it's some kind of porno site. I couldn't believe God's people talking about going out and drinking and doing this, and I can't wait to get a beer, and I can't wait till I hear that. And, I, and he wrote to me, and he says, we've talked many times what's wrong with Christianity. And the bottom line, here it is. There's no fear of God and no holiness of God in our lives anymore. We actually think we can say we're Christian and do those things, and God just says, well, you're okay. It's no wonder, my God people, it's no wonder we don't have any power in our lives. It's no wonder we have no real connection with God. God's not doing anything with us. We are just, many of God's people are just like those people there. They're laying around in their infirmities right in the middle of the pool of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and waiting for God to do something. When all the time you've got the Word of God in your heart and in your life and the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside you. I look at the Christianity and I think to myself, my God, what's wrong with us? Don't we realize that one of these days soon, we're at way past the 11th hour. That he's coming back. The church is done. The fullness of the times that the Gentiles are in. And God uh, then turns to the Gentiles. But we are gone. And we stand there to give an account of our stewardship with God. Don't you ever think for a moment. Don't you ever think for a moment. That your face, my space, your rear end, whatever it is, won't show up at the judgment seat of Christ. Amen. I'm telling you, people, we fight it every day. We fight it every day. 
The world has such a tug and a pull. It's so easy to lose sight of the reason why God saved you, why He called you, and what He wants you to do with your life. And the world out there calls and shines and glimmers, and your friends go this and that, and pretty soon you're sucked right back into it again. And where God wanted you to have the power of God, a walk with God, a work with God. We wind up withered, halt, blind, laying around in our infirmities. Now, I didn't mean any of that. I just showing you why that's a good message to preach. <laughs> well, don't take, I wasn't preaching to you. I told you I was going to show you how I were. I was just, an, I was just a show. It wore me out, but it was a good show. I'm telling you. Not only is that a great message to preach today, it's a message that every child of God needs to hear. It's a message that every one of us needs to bear in our hearts because it's, 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 it's just a tug on us, just like it is in everybody else. I watch people, you know, who one time loved God, loved the Word of God, loved this church, and now they're out there bad-mouthing it, saying everything they can say, want nothing to do with it. And somebody says, how does that happen? What? I'll tell you why it happened. Because we live in a day and age when, my friend, the world wants to suck them right back in. And we live in a world in Christianity where everybody's looking for a better deal. I used up all my deals here. I'll go to another church where I can get some more deals. And the truth of the matter is, my friend, the only deal you need is the deal in this book. That's why you need to invest your life in knowing it, learning it. That's why I've dedicated my life to teaching it to you. That's why you young Christians, next Saturday morning when you sit down there, we get in here. I teach you to get you to learn everything you can about it. Because we are in the 11th hour. We're at 11.54. And then it's over. And then my space will be about a 12-inch square that you'll stand there and look at him. My face then will be the reflection of his face. Of why you took your salvation and you took his Bible and you took his love and then you did absolutely nothing with it. My space, my face, yeah. There'll be great terms at the judgment seat of Christ. I guarantee you. Let me just say this to you. You are the greatest people on this planet. I cannot have ever hope in all of my life to ever have a better group of men and women who love that book, who love, that, who love God, who love this church, who have vested your life, your time, your finances, and your very being, who as the Bible in 1 Corinthians said, we talked about it, that like the house of Stephanus, you have addicted yourself to this ministry. And it shows. It shows. I don't know when that final moment will be. I don't know... If it'll be before I die, after I die, or whatever. I know I have more, t more, t more, more years on that side than I got on this side. But I know this. Not many pastors get to have the privilege that I've had to having some of the greatest young men and young ladies, moms and dads, who fell in love with a book and fell in love with the author of that book who dedicate their whole life to one thing, and that is finding more out about God every day in their life and letting God have more of them. Let me tell you something. 
It's not about how much more you get of God. It's about how much more God gets of you. And you've dedicated your life to this church, to this ministry, and the work that we do here, and it shows. And for me to be gone and for you not only to have the men that preach the Word of God incredibly well, but to have the men and women of this church be here speaks volumes. I don't know what to say. I've had a very emotional week, and I'm about to have another emotional moment, so I'm going to stop right now. But you don't know what it means to me to know that people like you, forget me, your love is for that book and for God. All my simple little job is, is to get you to fall in love with a God in a book that I fell in love with. That's all my job is. I have no other task. Yes, I love you in the process, and I get mostly attached and tagged to you in the process, but you know what? That'll go away someday. What'll never go away is your relationship with that eternal book and that eternal Savior that saved you and loved you. And don't ever come to the place, don't ever come to the place where you let anybody take that book from you. You take every word of it, you hang on to every word of it, and you believe every word of it. And you come to the place in your life where you just stay a little child. Don't ever grow up when it comes to being with God. Don't ever grow up when it comes to your relationship with Him. Just believe in the cars that drive through the road while you can sleep. Believe the moon is made of green cheese. Believe all of those things that little kids believe when their parents tell them because they just know mom and dad will always tell them the truth. I guarantee you, God will always tell you the truth. He'll always be there for you, and he'll always lead you through the principles of the Word of God. Saturday morning, we go to work. Section 2. If you're here this morning and you missed the first section for whatever reason, maybe you weren't even here then, and you want to get in the second section, get caught back up in the first one, I'm going back to that table back there as soon as I'm done to book my appointments. You come back and see me. I'll hook you up with a family. I'll get you on fire. I'll get you going, and we'll help you with your Bible. That's the only reason we exist. Everything else doesn't matter. Say it one last time, then I'm done. Only two things, folks, worth investing your life in. Only two things. Because they're the only two things that are going to last for eternity. One of them is the Word of God, and the other one are the souls of men. Nothing else makes any difference. Father, Thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank